Welcome to Start By Listening, the podcast about sexual harm and trauma. We are centered on educating and empowering our Western Kentucky communities. Our goal is to transform the way we talk about sexual harm and trauma. Transformation begins by listening to understand. We talk so you can listen today and change the world tomorrow. Hey everyone, welcome back to Start By Listening. It's Jennifer, a.k.a. The Friendly Therapist, and I'm here with... Hello everybody, welcome back. It's Shelby. We are delighted to be here with you. And in case you didn't know, April has been designated as Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And so this month, we have a little something special that we're doing. We are going to be highlighting... Voices of survivors and their stories or poetry in their own words. And we're not going to be doing any YouTube videos um, because we simply want the voices of survivors to be main stage and be very present. And um, we checked out several books from our local library Um And it's been really interesting flipping through and reading some of the short stories and poetry. Yeah. A lot of the stories are very powerful and resonate so deeply and just inspiring that these survivors could take their traumas and express them in a way that will help other survivors because we know sexual violence is so prevalent amongst all cultures and backgrounds throughout the United States and throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and here in Kentucky, our, I call it our mothership, um, but KSAP, which is the Kentucky Association for Sexual Assault Programs, they created a documentary and it's called Believe Me. And it is debuting and airing um, next week on April 25th and 26th on KET Channel 3, and then on Sunday, April the 30th on KET. And I don't have the exact times, but if you're here in Kentucky, you can find that in your local listing. You can go online and Google KET and shows. If you're in Wisconsin and you're listening and you want to watch this amazing documentary, Um, I encourage you to Google KET as well. Um, And let me tell you, I was a part of that documentary, and I've watched it, prepare, have a box of Kleenexes with you, because, oh my goodness, the survivors' stories were just magnificent and powerful. Um, And I actually, I don't know if you knew this or not, Shelby, I watched it. Um, in early March as a sneak peek um, with my parents who are older. My dad is 90 and my mom is 86. And um, my dad and I are on two opposite ends of the world. You know, he's very conservative and very Republican, and um, I'm not. And um, at the end of this documentary, he turned to me and he said, I really wish that there would have been something like this back when I was a kid 
so that we would have learned how to not hurt people. And I was like, oh my gosh, if my 90-year-old dad got that from this documentary, it can touch anyone. And that's because a big piece of Sexual Assault Awareness Month is also prevention. And the documentary highlights so many key aspects of why prevention is such an important topic. And your father saying that he wished he had programs like that so he could have learned just proves how this is a cause that everybody can get behind because sexual violence is something that hurts everybody in our community. I mean, the secondary trauma, not to minimize the trauma that it causes survivors because that is immense and it changes the way you view the world, honestly. Your sense of safety is shaken to the core, um, but it also has a ripple effect and it hurts everybody. It really does because I don't know if it was somebody on one of our podcasts this season or maybe one of the therapists from New Beginnings from last season you know, my mind, ooh, squirrel, but we kind of unpacked and looked at um, what are the socioeconomic factors of communities that have violence and trauma, and it does, like, people have to use more sick days, more, um, more time off for mental health, for, I mean, just everything, and the ability to maintain stable employment sometimes. That can be a struggle for some people, right? And so companies that hire and train, like how much money goes into hiring an employee? So, I mean, yeah. If I think from the beginning, like from the (laughs) moment, I don't even know how this would be, from the moment of conception, right? If we could begin prevention, like right then and there, Oh, my gosh. We would have, um, I think, a more compassionate and empathetic world. I believe so. And I hate to reduce this to numbers, but you were talking about socioeconomic impact. Um, The statistic by the CDC is that child sexual abuse specifically has a lifetime economic burden for the United States of $4.7 billion. Um, That's a statistic that I've been citing in a lot of the research papers I've been doing in school this semester. And, again, I hate reducing those personal stories to a number, but that might resonate with some people because, it, again, it affects entire communities. Um, but the you can't take away from the individual trauma and life-changing stuff that goes on after someone experiences any type of sexual harm. And those are the stories that we're going to amplify and hear on this podcast today. Yes. So how about we get started? Um, The first um, story that I want to highlight today is it's, it's by an individual who was in the documentary. That is how I learned about her book. She lives in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, And I've never personally met her, but um, her story in particular in the documentary really touched my heart. And um, before we were going to do this podcast, um, oh no, actually after, because we came up with this idea like months ago. Well, anyway, 
I knew that one of the books, let me put it that way, that I really wanted to delve into and to share on our podcast was a part of her story. Now, obviously, I can't read her entire book. Um, I'm going to read two excerpts from her book. Um, but I'm going to encourage everyone to go out and buy her book. It is on Amazon or, you know, if you are low on money and you can't really buy books right now, you can go to your library and if they don't have it, they can do what's called an interlibrary loan and borrow it from another library. Um, but definitely, if you have the capability to purchase her book, please do so and show her some love and some support. And um, the author of the book, her name is Amelia Zachary, and she spells her last name Z-A-C-H-R-Y. And uh, the title of her book, it's called Enough, A Memoir of Mistakes, Mania, and Motherhood. And so I'm excited to share with you a little bit of her story today. We went clubbing on a Friday night at the beginning of our second year. It was Paul's birthday. He got a bottle of whiskey at the club, and it was just the four of us, Paul, Sophia, Paul's friend Sean, and me. I looked forward to our weekends together because I didn't get to see Sophia during the week, and she was at a different college. There were lots of shots, and soon we were joined by people we didn't know. They gathered around to drink with us. There were also people I recognized, but I did not personally know. Among them were Damien's friends, who I knew didn't like me. I could see Sophia out on the dance floor. Paul and Sean were across the room, laughing with some new friends. I was by the bar, taking in the vibes. A guy I knew to be a ruffian, known for his violent escapades, came to talk to me and handed me a shot. I accepted it, even though I was already completely inebriated. The next thing I knew, I woke up to cramps, as if my guts were trying to come through my esophagus to escape my mouth. My body was convulsing. I had dry heaves when I opened my eyes and saw the disgusting black grime on the grout in the red tiles, just inches from my face. I was in a filthy bathroom that I did not recognize. There was a loud ringing in my ears, and I had a splitting headache. I was naked on a grimy floor. I pushed my shelf to stand and hobbled to the sink to wash my face. It was covered in a thick layer of moldy film. At the sight of this, I vomited again. I was at a loss as to where, as to my whereabouts, or how I ended up here. My body shivered at the fact that I was on display. I had not been naked in front of anyone for as long as I could remember. A hot flash of urgency raced through me as someone approached the bathroom door. Get dressed. Your friends are downstairs waiting for you. It was a man's voice I didn't recognize. I looked up to see a bare room beyond him. The bed was a mess, and there was a bedside table with a large digital radio alarm clock. The stench then hit me like a brick wall. I didn't know what to make of all of this. Confusion took over. This is bad. 
something bad has happened. The thought rolled around in my head like a tumbleweed in the tornado. There was a musty, moldy, soiled carpet. I saw stains, black, gray, and crusty all over it. I tiptoed out of the bathroom, scanning the room for my panties and clothes. I found my panties in a bunch next to two white sleeves that I supposed were used condoms. I'd never used one before. Had I now? I must have. Or how else would I be in this condition? I still didn't know where I was. The last thing I remembered was being at the club with my friends. Why was I here with the guy who had given me the shot at the bar? How did I get here? What had we done? The guy just stood there, a calm and satisfied look on his face. He licked his lips like a dog after a treat. He glanced casually back and forth from his phone to me as he waited for me to react. Whatever it was that happened was now done. I was in pain, but my face was solemn, my voice buried along with my dignity. I knew in that moment that my dream of one day giving my whole self to a man I was madly in love with had been stolen from me, and it was entirely my doing. All I could think about was the viscosity between my legs and my sore vagina, which was burning like a motherfucker. I could not find my pretty black dress with the beautiful neckline that showed just enough of my breasts, the one that fits so perfectly that Sophia and I had agreed it was worthy of an epic night out. I was 19, and not womanly per se, though I had some curves on my petite frame. I had felt so good in that dress. There was a power in feeling alluring. I had never thought of myself as attractive in the typical sense. Charm and wit had always been my go-to. I would have to turn that on in order to make it through this moment. My friends were downstairs? I still couldn't piece together what was happening. I looked over at this guy I'd only seen him passing on campus. He was zipping up his pants and buckling his belt. He flipped the brown and green pilled covers back to reveal my dress, which lay there crumpled. I was desperate for it to cover my naked body. I grabbed it quickly. The embarrassment physically hurt. The sheets were stained, and I was filled with disgust, which added to the bad feeling in my head. The spinning escalated with every second I stood there in a confused stupor. Had I had sex for the first time? Was I not a virgin anymore? I wanted to die right there. Let me die. As I put on my dress, I saw fresh blood in my panties. Tears streamed down my face. I smelled his sweat, his saliva, the venom of a vicious monster. I couldn't look him in the eyes as we walked down the filthy motel corridor. I squeezed my brain to wring out an explanation, a memory of having traveled from here, from the club. In the lobby, the monster paid at the front desk. I heard an exchange about times and rates. I realized that we were at a pay-per-hour motel, 
the kind I'd only ever heard about. These existed for immoral activities, filthy activities of the sort I must have just been a part of. My body had apparently done whatever had unfolded. As my mind had abandoned my body, left it to be defiled in that room by a stranger. As he finished paying, I walked out the front door, disoriented. Where the fuck was I? How did I get here? How would I get home? Where were my friends? He said they were down here. Amy, what the fuck? I heard Paul's voice. I ran and reached out to hug him. I was so afraid. How glad I was to see my friend's face, only to be met with a rude push. I didn't understand. Everything started moving very fast. Suddenly, there were four other friends. I saw them around me, all yelling. I couldn't make out the words, but I was shrinking by the minute. They were angry at me. My world was spinning. It was impossible for me to move. The monster came up and said something to me. I heard fuel or money, and I looked at one of my friends, and he handed me my purse from the car. I opened my wallet, and he grabbed all the cash I had left in there, $60. Was this actually happening? First I woke up in a bathroom with no clothes, and now... He was robbing me? The tears had stopped. I stood there, immobile, while everyone yelled at me, accusing me of leaving the club with him. I found the strength to walk to the car. They drove me back to the club to find Sophia. They said she was upset and waiting for me. It all happened so fast. I couldn't believe what I'd done. I'd accepted the drink I had too much. I blacked out. I was smarter than this, wasn't I? I never thought something like this would happen to me. How could I have made a mistake like this? This was not just a mistake. This was a colossal fuck-up. What happened? I didn't remember. Perhaps nothing. Nothing happened, I said aloud, begging for mercy. No one believed me. The car ride was filled with their shouting and my shame, guilt, and fear. What would happen now? What would happen once everyone found out? The tears refused to descend. I heard the words whore, slut, irresponsible, selfish, all directed at me. How could you do this? I thought you were better than this, Paul said his face fixed on the road as he drove. How could I have done this? How did I? The weight of my own disappointment flooded over me, matching the fury in the car. We headed downtown to get Sophia, who was sitting on the curb staring at her phone, crying out of worry. She jumped in the back seat and hugged me tightly. It was the first warmth I had felt all night. It made me realize how cold I had been. She assured me everything was going to be okay, 
and we needn't speak about it until in the morning. Knowing I needed her, she spent the night with me. When I got home, I stood in the shower for more than an hour, methodically scrubbing myself. I had to get that saliva, sweat, and cheap cologne off. I scrubbed and scrubbed, but I couldn't get it off. The stench of that foul motel room clung to me, prompting another bout of vomiting. My body felt grimy. His sweat was still on me. I had a flash of his smooth brown chest pressed to the side of my face, but it was blurry. I had a two-second snippet followed by that cheap cologne smell. I grabbed the loofah and scrubbed incessantly. My face burned from the scrubbing, as did my chest and stomach. When I came close to my vagina, I couldn't scrub. I tried, but I winced at the pain. I felt I deserved the pain. I felt lightheaded from trying to remember, if only I could remember, how this had happened. Maybe I could fix it. I can fix this. I can fix this. I am so sorry. I didn't mean to. Please help me fix this. I sobbed for salvation from the universe, my parents, my friends, and everyone I had hurt by doing this. I had brought shame and humiliation on my family if they should ever find out. I had to keep this to myself and beg Sophia to do the same, as I couldn't bear my parents' disappointment in me. What felt like the weight of the vault collapsed on me onto the bathroom floor. Sophia banged on the door, begging for me to get out. On Monday morning, I steeled myself and went to school. Daddy dropped me off at the gate. I got out and saw one of Damien's friends. I walked toward the entrance. He smirked and said, Heard it was a great weekend. News spread like mold to damp. My ears were hot, and I'd never felt so small. I turned around. I can't go in there. I cannot face anyone. Oh, fuck, what will I do? My heart raced like never before. My head was spinning, and it felt like my skull was compressed in a clamp, tighter and tighter and tighter. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't see. I was so scared. I vomited on the concrete, standing in the spot where I'd smoked every day in the past months with my friends. I couldn't face anyone so I walked to the coffee shop. I sat and sipped my coffee, the warmth reminding me I was here. I lit a cigarette, and as I put my lighter down, it went flying to the floor. What the fuck? I was being yanked by the back of my collar. My ears were still buzzing, and I was queasy from the vomiting. I heard a lot of yelling, but I had no idea who or what it was until I was slammed into the wall. A louder ringing in my ear followed the hot tingling on my cheeks from the slap I had just received. You can fuck around and sit on any dick you want, but don't go after my boyfriend, said the girl. She was taller than me, definitely meatier and stronger. Well, obviously, you're not sitting on it enough, or maybe his dick couldn't handle all of you. That's a lot, babe. Go figure. 
The words slipped out because I was vacant of any sense of self. At that moment, I didn't care about being beaten. I was on my own, and she had at least 60 pounds on me. I didn't care about my body. It was now tainted and nasty by whatever I had done with the monster. She raised her hand again, and someone pulled her away. It was lovely to have met the mate of the monster. She was escorted out of the cafe by her friends. I sat down and sipped coffee. This humiliation I could handle, but the shame I had brought upon my family and myself I could not bear. I didn't understand how any of it had happened. I didn't even know what exactly had happened. I just knew I couldn't stay seated for too long. The pain between my legs grew. I texted a few friends hoping one of them would walk me to class. I was too afraid. No one answered. They were all Damien's friends, and they'd been there that night. The story, starring me as the slut who'd brought this outcome upon herself, was already out there. I couldn't undo it. The answers to my text followed in quick succession. Stop texting me. Don't text me. Can't believe you did that. About time you got put in your place. Free fuck. I thought you were better than us. Your cheap pussy had it coming. I couldn't believe that my friends were ostracizing me. The fact that I'd made a mistake of epic proportions hit me again and again as I scrolled through my phone. I didn't have anywhere to go. I belonged nowhere now. Without Sophia, I was desperate for someone to talk to. I called Paul, begged him to meet me. He was my friend, my last chance at regaining my place in college. You have to tell me what happened, Amy, he said coldly. I don't know. Please believe me, I don't know. I can't believe this happened. How could you? I heard the sound of resignation and the end of our friendship with the click of the phone. It was the last time we ever spoke. I couldn't attend any of my classes. I was too afraid of the monster. I was afraid of everyone. I couldn't face anyone. Sophia was the only one who tried to console me, to comfort me by saying it was all going to be okay. I insisted nothing had happened, lying to comfort her. Ruth sent a message through a friend. Ruth doesn't want to be associated with anyone who could do what you did. I did not have a reaction. We'd been best friends since we were 14, inseparable. I would never hear from Ruth again. Our friendship was done in the blink of an eye over a moment I could not even remember. The author goes on, and several years later, if you fast forward in the book, and I'll read this last excerpt. As we walk through the desert, I know that much relies on me. My life isn't perfect, but it is mine to steer. I have a choice. We walk to a nearby swimming hole as we follow the water in the stream. My daughters are ahead of me, speedily walking in the stream and over the rocks, and I start to get anxious. 
Daniel is ahead of the girls, making sure it's safe. I stop and breathe. I am determined to enjoy this moment with my family. I am reminded of all the life choices I made in the past, foregoing things because I couldn't handle my mental state. But this time, something different happens. I am staring straight ahead, and I see my girls joyful and excited by the wilderness. I take my next steps. With every step, the anxiety seems to spill into that stream. I step closer and closer to my children. I realize that I've got this. I can do this. I can do difficult things. And I will keep at it with the mindfulness born of the pain. Mental illness is a part of who I am, but it is not me. That was very powerful. And I'm so glad that you followed it up with that very last piece. I mean, her words are just... So much of it, like the guilt, the shame, and that self-blame. I felt that. But then when she started talking about the reactions from her classmates and how they were also shaming her, the reality of that terrible rumor mill mm-hmm. when it wasn't your fault. And I think that she writes with such distinct quality of the senses, you know, um, and it paints a beautiful picture of what that pain was like for her in that moment to lose her friends. And her descriptions. I mean, I could I could feel it, like the way she brought the cigarette to her lips and the visuals. You can really, with her descriptions, put yourself there and empathize with how she was feeling. But I did. I wanted to read that last excerpt because um, I think it's so important for listeners to know that there is hope there is healing that can occur, you know, after um, a sexual assault. And shows the strength. So I want to follow that up. The author felt so alone in her experience. Mm -hmm. It sounded with the shame that she felt this happening to her brought on her family. Um, I want to read an excerpt from this book. It's called Not That Bad, Dispatches from Rape Culture, Um, edited by Roxanne Gay, and it is a bunch of short stories that have been put together. And I want to read the one written by the author whose pen name is XTX. Um, And it's called The Ways We Are Taught to Be a Girl. And I think it kind of normalizes the experience that so many of us go through throughout our young life and adolescence. Later, you will turn into a point system. You won't call it a point system, and there won't be any actual points, but regardless, you will keep score. You imagine other girls have their own ways of keeping score, in diaries, in shiny, smooth scars, in how they raise their daughters, in the ways they are lost. It's an odd, it's an odd tallying. The girls who have the most points are not the winners, 
and the girls who have the lowest points do not win either. Nobody wins. Ever. I am a girl with low points. The ways we are taught to be a girl start when you are very young. When you are being taught, you don't know about the points. When you are being taught to be a girl, the lessons are simply accepted. The price you pay for your curves, your holes. It's only later, when you are older, after you've been taught, that you find out about the score sheet. Prior to that, it's just what happens when you're a girl. Lesson one. We had a place in the country we'd go each summer, an old place on half an acre on the outskirts of a one stoplight white trash town, woods, river, and railroad tracks. Free range, roaming, sunburn, snakes, tadpoles, crayfish, filth, mosquito bites. I had made a same age friend who lived no far, who no, who, sorry, I made a same age friend who lived with no father, two older brothers, and three sisters in a house too small for its captors, inhabitants. It was a six minute walk from our place, the length of a neighboring horse pasture. The girl's room had pink spray painted dots on the walls. The mom kept a giant jar of homemade pickles in the kitchen that my friend and I would eat from, wrapping the dripping, tangy green meat in paper towels and chewing them down to stubs. We walked barefoot a lot. We swam in the river, we climbed trees, we made up adventures, we played dolls sometimes. We were tomboys, but we were girls first. Her oldest brother liked to give me hugs. One time we were riding a horse together. It spooked and ran and we fell off when it took a sharp turn. Her body fell into a wood post. Mine did not. I remember her crying, taking her shirt off, the pale white side of her scraped and bleeding. I remember thinking, she has her shirt off and she doesn't care. I remember bathroom, back teen and bandages and never wanting to ride a horse again. Adventures. A fort down by the river, fiberglass, aluminum, boards, dirt. It had bunk beds and boys, her brothers. She brought me there one day. I was maybe seven. Now I wonder, did she lure me? Was this the plan all along? Adventures. They kiss her with tongue to show me how easy it is. See, no big deal. Now you try it. I didn't want to try it. The fort was hot. The door was blocked. I didn't want this. Seven years old, eight, nine, six. Which age makes it better? Just do it. These weren't the words. These were the words. I was a child. I was scared. She said them too, three against one. I didn't do it. They did it. I did nothing except endure my first lesson on how to be a girl. I remember not being able to breathe and crying while they felt my perfectly flat chest, their slimy hot tongues pushing into my mouth, alien and gross. I remember pushing and running because I was suffocating, scared, because it all felt like speeding downhill without brakes, and if I didn't run, I would crash, and that crash would cost too many points. I didn't know about the points, but somewhere deep down I knew. I told my parents when I got home, not everything, learn not to tell everything. We know everything will make them see the bad in us, how it was our fault, how we contributed, how we fear repercussions, albeit lighter than the ones we'll administer to ourselves, slut, bad, 
ugly, weak, whore, trash, shame, hate. We tell just enough if we tell it all. It wasn't allowed. I wasn't allowed to play with her after that. I was okay with that. Summary. Sometimes you will be forced into things you don't want to do. Sometimes you will be made to feel bad you don't want to do things. After the things are done, you will feel like a bad person. These feelings will never go away. They enter the wet plaster of you and harden into the mold of you. The way you are taught to be a girl will become how you are as a woman, a woman who is, at her core, not good enough, without worth, tarnished. Lesson two, why was it always friends of friends? Maybe because the door was already open, less work, sitting ducks, easy prey, the same summer place, the back porch after swimming, my older brother's friends, my brothers, all of us wrapped in towels sitting around. I was an age there's no pubic hair and you're aware there's none, embarrassed about it, whichever age that is. My brother's friends overlapping his towel onto mine, his hands snaking in, snaking under, trying to get the girl of me. My brothers are there. Nobody is there. I cement my legs closed. I press so hard and plead hard with the thighs I will learn to hate for the rest of my life simply because of their roundness. Why is he doing this? Why can't anyone see? Why am I not moving, saying, yelling, screaming? Why me? The fingers go as far as he can get them, which isn't far as he wants to get them, and he gives up. They go play. I release my thighs, quiver, spent, mostly victorious. If they want it, they can take it. What you want or don't want is irrelevant. Lesson three. The same summer place a father's friend, drunk, a master bedroom during a party he sneaks away from. I'm watching cartoons, still no breasts, no pubes, only a summer tan, shorts, halter top, risque. Did my lying on my side, head on my, head on my hand, lounge pose, siren seduce him? Or maybe it was my long tan legs, slut child. I was watching cartoons in my room by myself. He lay down on the bed, his pose mirroring mine. He begins stroking the mountain range length of me, head, hair, cheek, shoulder, arm, waist, hip, thigh, calf, an endless petting. I watch cartoons. His soured breath, garbled words, his hand, slow and stroking, feeling him inch closer, narrowing the valley between us. I want for bed sheets a nightlight, a way to hide, shrink away. Monsters aren't only in closets, under beds. I watch cartoons unsure. Uncle, he's nice, right? My dad's friend. This is okay, right? Then why does it feel so wrong? Why can't I move, get up, run? My body betraying me once more. Once more, a car without brakes. The door opens and another father's friend rages, rips him off the bed. What the fuck do you think you're doing? He asks. And that's when I know for sure that was a wrong thing. I'm left alone with the bed, the cartoons, feeling a partner in the wrong thing. If I was a good girl, if I would have left, 
I didn't do anything. I let him. I let him. I let him. I let him. My fault. Summary. If you do nothing, it's your fault. Even if you are a child. Even if you are scared. Even if the man is your dad's good friend who you've known since growing up. Pay attention. Take notes. This is how you are shamed, shaped into a woman. Lesson four. Summer again, but this time, a two-week lakeside camp. The foxiest counselor, dark brown curls, dark brown eyes, summer tan, a cute boy smile. Was I 12, 13, 11? Yes. He must have recognized my young girl longing. The look away and smile, the turn, giggle, blush, all the puppy love behaviors. I was chubby, unpretty, plain, an easy mark. He was a god and he knew it. I was only prey. He taught sailing, and when he asked if I'd like to take the boat out with him, just him and me, of course I said yes. He was beautiful. He was a counselor, an adult. Looking back, he was probably only 19 or 20, but he was a counselor. To me, that was akin to a teacher. There was no need to worry. I obviously had forgotten my previous lessons. Bad student. Bad girl. He took the boat from the dock out into the lake. Once we were clear, he had me take the rudder and, pointing to a spot on the other side of the lake, instructed me to aim for it. He lay on his back, closed his eyes. It occurred to me that maybe this was his clever way of being able to take a short nap. I was wrong. And also, I was right and also wrong. As I steered, I stared, his tan body clad in only swim trunks his brown, hairless chest, muscle thighs, and smell of him, not believing my luck at being chosen by such a cute guy. Me, the chubby plain girl, the one-piece swimsuit with a long t-shirt over it girl, so many bikini-cute girls left behind unpicked, my girl's heart fluttered. After a while, he woke up, checked how I was doing, praised me with that smile, told me I'd done a fine job, called me a good girl, he lay back down, but he reached up and, and started caressing my face. He took his thumb and pressed it all over my lips and into my mouth. Again, I froze. I did not know what this was. What was this? In and out of my mouth, and I sucked on it. Automatically, I sucked his thumb. I didn't know what to do, but it felt like that's what he wanted from one of my counselors. So I sucked on it like a sleepy baby, even though it felt wrong. I was in the middle of a lake alone, not alone. I saw the brakeless car then. I was headed toward the crest of a hill, my stomach. I couldn't see his eyes. He had sunglasses on, but I saw he had a heart on. I had brothers. I had my dad's hustlers, his joy of sex. I knew exactly what it was, what it could do. He began rubbing it over his shorts while I took his thumb and then, after a short time, he reached under his shorts and started working himself, faster and faster, until an abrupt groan and stop. I wasn't sure what had happened, but I was sure nonetheless. He jumped in the lake, swam around for a minute, then we sailed back in silence. He never took me sailing again. Summary. If a boy treats you like you're special, it's probably because he wants to come and not because you're a treasure he discovered. 
You're not a treasure. You are a thing a boy can use to make him ejaculate. This makes sense. You already believe this to your core. You have been taught. Lesson five. I loved playing arcade games. My brothers and I would spend our allowances at the mall arcade every week. I was a pro at at Donkey Kong, but not on this day. On this day, I had the best game of Galaga ever. Preteen or so, I plugged my quarters in and started killing insect aliens. As was typical back then, to claim next game, you put your quarter onto the edge, onto the top ledge of the machine and stand back with the current, and stand behind the current player. Wait. So it wasn't alarming at first to have a body behind me. Not at first, but shortly after I cleared level one, the body got close, really close. Something hard was pressing into my rear, a constant, noticeable pressure. I thought maybe the guy, because it was a guy, had bought something at the mall, something long that would stick out of a bag he might be holding at his side, a roll of wrapping paper or a poster. I wasn't sure, but these were the first things that came to mind. I kept shooting alien insects. The hard pressing into my ass continued. My shooting continued. And then he put his arm up on top of the machine, and suddenly his entire body was curved against me. I instantly knew what was not pressing into me. It was not a poster. It was not wrapping paper. I looked to my right, tried to turn and look at him, but his arm had me locked in. He was too close for me to see his face. What I saw instead was an Asian boy standing about ten feet away, staring at us. I thought to myself, what must this look like? Where are my brothers? Why is nobody seeing I need help? I played the game while he rubbed against me, level after level, while he rubbed against me. I was having the best game of my life while he rubbed against me. I couldn't die while he rubbed against me. I got extra lives while he rubbed against me. My score went up and up and up while he rubbed against me. All I wanted was the insect aliens to kill me while he rubbed against me. All I wanted was for my brothers to see me and know and help while he rubbed against me. I was frozen, heartbeat ballistic, petrified, body betrayed me once more while he rubbed against me. I did nothing. Eventually my game ended. I remember a sort of shoulder rolling off me, angry, and his face smiling. Just to be ultra sure, I glanced down. No shopping cart. No shopping bag. I bolted from the arcade. My brothers were nowhere to be found, and I was glad they hadn't seen. Summary. You could have left, but you stayed. You wanted it, and he knew. The ways we turn the gun to our own temple. Lesson six. Up until I was 15, I never had a boyfriend. Plain chubby girls don't get boyfriends. But my blonde, cute, busty best friend had no problem getting boyfriends. She was two years older than me, not the brightest girl. She'd been held back in school a couple times, and that's how we ended up being friends. Her high school boyfriend, Mike, drove a Camaro. I'd frequently be the third wheel, and we'd drive around various hidden spots to smoke weed or drink, sometimes drive into San Francisco, drunk walk down Broadway, sneak into sex shops and peep shows and porn booths, It all felt very reckless, and it was, but they were older and cooler, and I was just an uncool freshman. Sometimes Mike would bring one of his friends. They were usually around his same age, 17, stoners mostly, long hair, derby jackets, Ronnie James Dio, and black Sabbath lovers. Sometimes we'd go drive 
park and party. My friend and Mike would go into the car and make out, and I would be left with whichever friend had come. One time, Mike brought an older friend. He was dark and fat and had a mustache. Even now, I'm not sure how old he was. He couldn't have been. Tw- he could have been 21, 22, 40. All I know is that I will never forget that mustache. This time, Mike and my friend left him and me in the car to go do whatever they were going to do. We were in the back seat and summary. Men are strong. Also see lesson summary is one, two, three, four, and five. Points eight, total score 17. The ways we are taught to be a girl are many. These were my biggest lessons. The smaller ones aren't worth writing about, but they add up. These sit on my lap, uncle, whose nuzzles on your neck and won't let you down. Calls his mustache a caterpillar, doesn't it tickle? The bouncer who frisks you slow and long between your legs in the dark hallway when your group has already gone ahead into the club. The fuck you, dumb bitch, when you tell him no. He can't get what he wants. The drunk stranger guy, a drunk you was chatting and laughing and with who suddenly dives into your mouth with with his because being friendly is an invitation. The guy after guy after guy who grinds your his dick in your ass when you're dancing with your girlfriends. What he wants. My score is low compared to some and high compared to others. The harder the lesson, the higher the points. Some girls would kill for my score. This is why I don't talk about my score. I got off easy. I legitimately think I got off easy. I didn't get raped. My dad didn't finger me. My cousin didn't make me suck his dick. Nobody asked fucked me while I was passed out at a frat party. I got fondled at best. Not that bad, right? Lucky, right? Exactly. This is what I'm saying. I got off easy. Why even write this essay? Until I became a seasoned adult, I thought this was a normal part of growing up as a girl. Weird shit with boys, men, happens to you. Look at all the times it happened to me, so obviously it's just how it is in life. Like flat tires, running out of gas, getting a traffic ticket, spraining an ankle, etc. It's fucked up, but it happens, and you just deal with it. Move on. But as I matured and met other women, looked back on my life, I realized it's not normal. It's the exception. It's not what you get for being a girl. It's what you get for not having vigilant parents. It's what you get for not knowing how to defend yourself. It's what you get for being young, innocent, and scared. It's what you get when you're unsupervised and stupid. Most of all, it's what you get when men decide to take it from you, regardless of what you want. If all of these boys, these men, had chosen to treat me as more than a thing, my scorecard would be empty right now. None of this was supposed to happen. Didn't have to happen. I wasn't supposed to have a score. None of us were. Wow. That was fire. Longer than I expected reading it out loud rather than to myself, but I think it had a very powerful message. Mm Mm-hmm. I liked how there was the summary at the end of each chapter, like here's the lesson, in case you didn't pick it up. And I think that 
story is so true for millions and millions of girls. The normalization of rape culture, and that's why I found it to be so powerful because the author said this is just what happens. This is just a part of being a girl. Mm-hmm. doesn't have to be. How many of us growing up were forced to go sit in someone's lap? Hello, Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. The Easter Bunny. Or just give them a hug, even when you don't want to. We're taught not to listen to our guts, not to listen to our instincts, to give in to what we're being told to do. You know, growing up in the late 70s, early 80s, it was all about stranger danger. That's that's important because that has its own place, right? But there was no education about what do you do if somebody makes you feel uncomfortable? And historically, as women, we have been silenced. We're not allowed to speak. And that's like in our DNA. Mm-hmm. My God, that was fucking brilliant, Shelby. That was good. I want to read that book now. Yeah, that was just one of the excerpts, but I read a couple of the other ones. And again, that book is Not That Bad, Dispatches from Rape Culture, edited by Roxanne Gay. And the excerpt that I read was by pen name Mm. XTX. Whoa. So, you know, wherever you are in this world, whether you're in your car, you're on a subway, you're outside, you're on your lunch break... You know, just know that these stories resonate with you. You know, you are not alone. And there are resources. And there are people who are willing to help and listen. And the national organization for the United States is called RAIN, R-A-I-N-N. And their information is on our um, details in the podcast. I just wanted to say that because I thought that was important. I think that is very important. Let people know there are resources. And the truth of it all is you are not alone. So this is another book. And the name of this book is called Dear Sister. And it is Letters from Survivors of Sexual Violence. Edited by Lisa Factora Borchers. And there's an introduction written by, and I'm so sorry, I'm probably going to butcher this name. I'm going to pronounce it the best way I can. Asisha Shahida Simmons. And so if you are listening and I mispronounced your name, I am deeply sorry. I'm doing the best I can. (laughs) Um, And this first letter is called... um, Letter number one, keep breathing, and it is written by an an ally. Dear sister, keep breathing. You may have to measure time and breaths for a while. You will have a minute, and then an hour, and then a day when it isn't so hard to let your chest rise and fall when you don't feel the weight of so much pain you will have a day one day without you even realizing what happened the weight will be lifted for a moment you will be happy something beautiful will catch your eye or something will make you laugh 
For now, you are here. Maybe you feel you are broken. Maybe you are broken. Maybe the whole world is broken. But there is something that is not broken. You can find it. Look for it one breath at a time. Love and ally. Oh, that was pretty. You know how much I'm into breath work. I liked that. I think that was powerful. Look for it one breath at a time. After experiencing trauma, sometimes it's hard to breathe. You can't find your breath. Mm-hmm. Breathing can cause anxiety in and of itself. Yeah. Finding that, regaining that again. Mm-hmm. When we are able to connect with our breath, that allows us to center ourselves. The next little excerpt is um, entitled Letter 3, It Wasn't Your Fault. And this is by, I'm going to pronounce this name again the best I can, Amina Shakur. Dear sister, it wasn't your fault. It was never your fault. You did nothing wrong. Hold this tight to your heart. It wasn't your fault. At night when you lay there and your mind fills with images and you wonder, if only, if you had, if you hadn't, remember, it wasn't your fault. When you talk to someone, family, friend, therapist, coworker, another survivor, you will get the sense that they wonder why you wore that, went there, didn't think, didn't know, seemed willing, were unsure and unclear, didn't scream, didn't bite. Why, why, why? Remember, no matter what they tell you, It wasn't your fault. If you whispered, I love you, it still wasn't your fault. If you let it be known that you like girls instead, it still wasn't your fault. If you had said yes before, it did not give permission this time, and it still wasn't your fault. If you said maybe later, it still wasn't your fault that he wouldn't wait. If you slept with his friend, or even everyone knows, you're easy. It doesn't mean they own you and have a right. It still wasn't your fault. If you let him in when he was drunk in the middle of the night, it was not an invitation to sex, and it still wasn't your fault. You didn't confuse him. You did not owe him for anything. You didn't deserve it. You didn't make him do it, drive him crazy, make it easier, give him unspoken permission. When he ignored your words, when he touched you without your permission, when he used your body against your wishes, it was his fault, not yours. It was never your fault. Hold this tight to your heart. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, it's a very important message. 
so many um, survivors have that thought. It's my fault. I shouldn't feel this way. I said yes before, so that means yes now. Mm-hmm. This is called, this is a poem, and it is called Memory 1999, and it is by Judith Stevenson. May 13th, 1999. I am 49 years old. I remember, 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 I remember it. That was very moving. The name of um, this poem is called Letter to My Rapist by Anu Saini. I feel sorry for you. Because you did not kill me. There was a point when you were holding my neck and a kind spirit in me almost whispered, Do it. Snap it. Right through the throat. One way, the only way, to stop the truth from stalking you. Right through the throat. Snap it. Killing the wind that almost whispered to you, but didn't. And now it's that kind spirit, what you thought was a kind spirit, that laughs at your naivety in sparing me. Because you let me live, and that was a big mistake. The truth is fierce, and the silence of that breath was the biggest, is the only lie I ever told. All of these are very powerful and thought-provoking and really make me feel deep in my core, just just intensity. And my heart is like racing, you know, like I'm definitely unsympathetic my nervous system because words are movement and words are powerful and um, the brave people who have shared their voices in these books right they're speaking their truth absolutely the title of this book is called Dear Sister Letters from Survivors of sexual violence. And there's a lot more in there, and I'll be reading some more of this for our next podcast. Well, I'll wrap up with my second selection. So I have a memoir here written by Katie Roche 
um, it's called Fragment, Fragments, a Post-Traumatic Paradigm. Now, I saw Katie speak um, at a conference. It was a webinar conference uh, during COVID, but he was a very powerful speaker, um, survivor of human trafficking, um, and works now um, to help survivors of human trafficking um, and focuses on family-facilitated exploitation, especially of LGBTQ persons. He is a trans man, um, and this story, uh, this memoir is written from his childhood when he went by Kate. Um, and I'm just going to read a few experts, but I really encourage you to read this memoir. It's a quick read, but it is incredibly powerful. Again, it's called Fragments, a Post-Traumatic Paradigm, um, because the way the book is written is in the way um, that his memories were stored, because we know when we experience trauma, it's not necessarily a linear story. We remember in feelings and smells and similar to like how the first author wrote. So this is a memoir, but there's also some short poems in here. And I've just picked three that I found powerful, and they're more from the beginning of his trafficking story. Um, and again, if you want to read another powerful story, I encourage you to find this book on Amazon, or I'm not sure if it would be at the local library, but try and get it there if it isn't. So the first is, didn't anyone know he was a bad guy? He wasn't a hell-raised, drug-crazed, hard, intimidating, or tattooed man as many might imagine. He was more like your Sunday school teacher, the barber, mailman, or dentist. He was your best friend's brother, your girlfriend's lover, anyone other than the guy you'd expect. Hmm. That's so true because the people who hurt people are people we love and care about and people we don't want to think would do things like this. But who they are behind closed doors may be different than the front that they put on for the rest of the community. So this one is, why didn't you say anything? See, I loved him once too before he ruined my favorite cartoon interrupting it with unwelcome advances. I was silenced by fear. I knew innately this wasn't right, but even at seven years old, he said I was responsible. And if an adult says it, it must be true. Mm. That one is inspiring rage in me in this moment. The audacity of... Mm. Say, if you want to experience true rage, this book will inspire it because this is written from the time the author is about seven until they are 15. Um, and again, the entire story is about their experience with human trafficking by their uncle and cousin, people who they thought were people who should have been safe. Um, 
and it just goes to show you. Okay, so this one is Rise Up for Justice. I couldn't tell you the number of times I've been asked. Could anyone have made a difference? And I know what you are looking for. I know what you mean. And I know the answer you want me to say. I'd like to say yes, that the pediatrician could have questioned the third UTI I had in a month. My teacher could have asked why I was so tired that I slept through every class. I'm sure event security saw the men come and go from the RV. But we've been taught by society to mind our own business because our concerns might not be validated and the fear of being invalidated has a way of paralyzing us because silent is not as uncomfortable as wrong. America, home of the brave. So brave, in fact, we avoid what makes us uncomfortable. Afraid to leave our phones at home, what would we do if we had to hold real conversation with someone we didn't know or sit in uncomfortable silence? See, the problem was not that no one knew what was going on. The problem was not even that no one believed me. The problem was that nobody wanted to acknowledge there was a problem. Whoa, I, I need to get that book. That's going to go on my Amazon wish list. What was the part, Shelby, that said silence is something more than wrong or being wrong? The fear of being invalidated has a way of paralyzing us because silent is not as uncomfortable as wrong. Mm -hmm. um, there you go. Silent is not as uncomfortable as being wrong. I have to be honest, I felt that in my spine. I mean, how many times just with something simple like a math problem, right, do we not want to be wrong? So many people don't want to speak out, don't want to be told that they're wrong or they deserved it or have their friends disown them for something that wasn't their fault. Wow. So if anyone out there is feeling kind of heavy, like I am in this moment, I'm going to encourage you to move your body, go on a walk, turn on some music that's a little uplifting, dance around, shake it out, uh, yell it out, you know, um, whatever your nervous system needs. Well... I have really enjoyed our time together today, Shelby. This was very different than what we've done yeah. in the past. Um, but really, I'm digging this, like, using our spoken voice to be able to speak the words. Mm. Yeah. Thanks for being here yeah. today. And like I always say, you can change the world tomorrow just by listening today. Have a great day. Well, we've made it to the end of our episode. We want to thank you for listening. We hope you'll take something you heard today and use it to change the world tomorrow. We wanted to thank our music producer, Seth Hedges, from Uriah Wild Media. His website is in the show description. Also, a big shout out to Rodney Newton, our technical advisor. See you next time.
This project was supported by grant number VOCA 2020 Green River 26, awarded through the Kentucky Justice and Public Safety Cabinet by the U.S. Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this program are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Kentucky Justice and Public Safety Cabinet or the U.S. Department of Justice. Thank you.